You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and as you're turning there... Uh, Let me just say two uh, quick things. Number one, if you were here last week, uh, Dan Hutchins, one of our staff guys, um, preached last week. I mean, he did a great job, didn't he? He did a really good job of navigating a really difficult passage. Yeah. I think that deserves a little applause. Yeah, he did a great job of navigating a difficult passage and really served us well last week. And secondly, as you're turning to Mark chapter 12, uh, let me also just give you this encouragement and kind of a family issue that I want you just to be thinking about. We are, it's hard to believe that we are already to June how is that possible? This year is basically half over. And, uh, and I think it's a great time for you to do a check on your 2014 generosity. And here's the reason that I want to encourage uh, for you to check on that, for you to know about that. Uh, and for us as a church family to be free from the love of money so we can be free to love Jesus. That's what we're going after. And so I want you to hear our heart in that. It's not to get something from, it's to get something for you, namely more of Jesus in your life. And so we want to be a church that excels in the gift of giving, that excels in it, not just that is ordinary in that, but excels. And so if you'll do this for me this week, if you'll jump on the city, that's where you can find all that information, go to the giving tab, all that stuff is there for you. You can check on your 2014 generosity and ask yourself the question, is my generosity thus far, we're halfway through 2014, is it, is it excelling? Like, am I excelling in the gift of generosity this year? Fair enough? Okay, Mark 12. Uh, Let me uh, catch you up just real briefly in where we are in the gospel of Mark. So we have been traveling through um, this gospel for a long time now. This is part like 43 or 44, something like that. And so a few weeks ago, uh, we started in chapter 11. And this is the last week of Jesus' life. In chapter 11, this is the Sunday of the last week. Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. He goes in and kind of checks out the temple. He, go, he leaves Jerusalem, comes back on Monday morning. He curses a fig tree, kills a fig tree, turns over tables in the temple. And then he leaves again, comes back on Tuesday. And the Tuesday is marked by all sorts of controversy. If you look at uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 27, you'll see the first kind of string of controversy. And, and what's happening over and over on this Tuesday is that people are, these religious leaders, that the religious leaders of the day are coming to Jesus and, and they're asking him these questions in an attempt to trip him up and to trap him. And really, it's an effort to kind of curb the the popular support that Jesus has at the time and and at the moment. And so they're asking these sort of questions that really under them, the primary goal is confrontation. That's what they're getting at. They are trying to trip and trap Jesus with their questions. But then you get to to chapter 12, verse 28, and now this, this question that's about to be asked by this particular scribe and religious leader isn't so much a confrontation question. It is a question that he's sincerely seeking clarification for. So the purpose is not confrontation, but clarification. And I want you to notice in this passage, as you heard Valentine read it earlier, Jesus is so kind to this man, really compassionate in the way he responds. He responds clearly to him, gives him the answer that he's looking for, right? Like he just responds with a tone of kindness and compassion, and he speaks plainly to him. And I want to encourage, um, I, I know that in a room like this, there are some right here this morning that are really seeking answers from God. And if you're not coming like with the tone of confrontation, trying to fight with Jesus, but, but in an effort to get clarification, to actually learn from Jesus, now I, I want to encourage you that you can expect this from God for him to deal really kindly with you this morning. For him to speak plainly to you. And for him to deal honestly with your questions. When you come with sincere questions to get real answers from Jesus, you can expect him to deal honestly with you. To deal plainly and simply with you, compassionately with you. So I want to give you that hope this morning if that's you. So the scribe comes in verse 28 and he asks this question. Verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, here's what the scribe asked. Which commandment is the most important of all? So, so which is the most important commandment? That's the question. Okay, now this would be a pretty common question for the scribes. The scribes of this day, this would be a normal kind of thing they would debate. These people were experts of the law. Now, let me just give you a sampling of what I'm talking about here. They were totally like nerds when it came to like law stuff. And so they figured this out. This is the extent they went as they were learning about the Old Testament law. They looked at the Ten Commandments and they found that there were 613 words that made up the Ten Commandments. 
And then they looked at the first five books of the Bible and realized there's also 613 laws in the first five books. I mean, who does that, right? Somebody that's got way too much time on their hand. So this is the sort of, you know, the sort of depth that they would get into when it comes to, to the law. Out of those 613 commandments, 365 were positive, like you should do this. 248 were negative. You should not do this. And one of kind of the favorite pastimes of these scribes would be to get together and debate which of these laws, of these 613 laws, were the weightiest, like carried the most significance and weight. Which one were the heaviest? And then which, which were the lighter ones that didn't carry so much significance and weight? And in any complex legal system, you've got to kind of work through those things, right? And so let me just give you a, for instance, of like one of the questions they might have asked. So, um, you know, like one of the commands, one of the laws in the first five books of the Bible is you should Sabbath, right? So you should have a Sabbath day, a day where you do no work. But here was another law in the first five books of the Bible, is that on the eighth day, every male child should be circumcised. So the question is, what happens, which is the weightier law when, when the eighth day falls on the Sabbath day? Now what do you do? So they would go through and try to figure out which is the weightiest, which carries the most significance, and, and what's the heaviest of these laws. So this is a, a kind of a common question that they would ask. So he came with a sincere question trying to get a real answer. Jesus, of all of these laws that you have given us, which is the weightiest? What is the most important? Now here's why I think this question is really helpful for you and I. You know, it's interesting. Like for me personally, sometimes the Christian life can get a little blurry and a little complicated. Like when I read through the New Testament, in response to what Jesus has done for me, the Bible is going to tell me to do now a lot of things in light of that. There are a lot of commands, a lot of like God saying, this is what pleases my heart when, when my sons and daughters do these things. And so there is a sense when you read through the New Testament that you're like, man, should I do this one or this one or that one? What's the priority? How do you like, how do you fight through and cut through all of this? And here's what I love about Jesus's response is in three verses, Jesus cuts through all the ambiguity, all the, the blurriness and gives you what is at the heart of what God wants for his sons and daughters. In three verses, he cuts through it all and says, here's what I want from you. In, in response to what I've done for you, now this is what it means and this is what it looks like when you cut it to its core of you following me. And, and here you have it in verse 29, 30, and 31. Jesus responds, three verses, cuts through all the ambiguity like this. Jesus answered, the most important, the heaviest, the weightiest of all of these things that God asked you to do. Here's the weightiest. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So I had originally planned to do all of that, you know, this whole passage this week. And that turned into like a couple of sermons. And so we're, we're going to spend all of our time this morning on verses 29 and 30. What, what it looks like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next week, we'll come back and get to love your neighbor and kind of finish the passage. So this week, I want to ask the question, what does it mean? What, is it, what does it look like for us to be a people who are loving God? Like we, we take the weightiest of the commands, and what does it look like for that command to be evident in our life? What does it look like to actually live in, in this command that Jesus says, if you cut through it all, this lies right at the heart of what God would want for us? What does it mean to love the Lord your God? So I'm going to start by clarifying it, then we're going to picture it, and then I want to finish by giving the motive behind it, like why it is that we should jump into this and how it is that we go about accomplishing it. So we're going to start with the command clarified. What is Jesus saying when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay, so to answer the question, what is the weightiest law, Jesus goes back, and what he says in verses 29 and 30, goes straight back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, it's a direct quote from there. Just one or two little add-ins that Jesus puts in. But it's virtually the, the exact quote of, of Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 would be, and especially those two verses, verse 4 and 5, are one of the most famous Old Testament passages. It would be like our John three sixteen. It would be like that sort of like, everybody knows that if you're a good Jew. And so, um, you know, they, they would basically quote this verse before all of their services. Every morning, every night, they would quote this verse. This was a big deal. And by the way, this is like, there is more in, in these couple of verses than a sermon or two could do. So we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of it this morning and 
just begin to kind of work through what, what are some of the implications of this. So let me just point out quickly in verses um, 30. In verse 30, a couple of, a couple of things out of verse 30. There's a, there's a what, there's a who, and there's a how. Let me just kind of run through these quickly. There's a what. That, that what Jesus is saying is the weightiest of all the commands is that we love. So there's something that I, you know, to do with this idea, this word love, that is really, really, really important to God. And it's really abstract in our culture because we use it for everything. So we're going to spend a lot of time trying to clarify what that means. So there's a what, and the answer is, is to love. There's a who, and that who is the Lord your God. So this is not a love, something ambiguous, or any old God of your choosing. This is loving a specific God. Namely, the Lord your God. And that word Lord in Deuteronomy 6 is translated Yahweh. That, that's, the, that's the Hebrew word that we're talking about. This is the triune God of the Bible. It's that God, not any God. It doesn't work just to say, I'm going to love a God or any God. It's no, I'm going to love the Lord our God. Like that God, Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible. It's specifically that God. And then there's a how. How are we to do that? Look at verse 30 again. He gives an explanation. What does it look like to love the Lord your God? It looks like this. We're to do that. We're to love in such a way that we're using all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That is what it looks like to love the Lord your God. We do it like that. That's the how of this thing. Now, let me just point out two quick things with it. So he gives like these repetitive words, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and those aren't like ways, he's not trying to like divide up the, the human body into all these different parts. At the end of the day, they are used as a way to emphasize something. So it would be just as fair for Jesus to look at us and say, here's, here's the greatest command. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That, that would be him getting across the point. But to emphasize what he is saying, he doesn't just leave it at heart. He says, no, you love God with all of your heart. All of your soul, it's an emphasizing. It's, it's like repeating it with all of your soul. And then he's going to do it again with all of your mind and with all of your strength. It's a way for God to say this with, with great emphasis. You're to love God with everything you have. That's how you're, you're to love God. If you want to boil it all down, it looks like that. You loving God with every fiber of your being. Okay, and then he also uses the word all in front of each of those four words. So it's all of your, your heart. It's all of your soul. It's all of your mind. It's all of your strength. It's just another way for him to emphasize what he's already emphasized. So so what Jesus is saying here, if you want to boil it all down, here's the point. Here is what God wants from his sons and daughters. Here's what God desires. You cut through it all. This is it. We are to be a people who in response to what God has done to us, we love God with like a reckless abandon. Like nothing withheld. Nothing that we're holding on to, it's full on, it's exclusive, it's loyal, it's passionate, it's with everything in us. We are bringing all that to God as we love him. That's what he's getting at. This is the command clarified. Now, let me try to give you a picture that I think will help bring a little bit of just a practical kind of tone to this. Because here's my fear for us in the room. You know, when it comes to like the greatest commandment, God cutting through everything and saying, this is what I want for my sons and daughters. Love me like this, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think that that's for most of us a fairly familiar idea. For for most in the room, for many, you've probably heard something along those lines before. But here's my fear for us. I think if somebody slid a piece of paper in front of us and said, hey, why don't you write down what that looks like to do that? Like, what does it actually mean to love God like that? What would that look like in your life? I think at that point, we would have a lot of ambiguity and blurriness. Like, what does it actually look like to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength? And so I want to use, just to make this very practical, I want to use a familiar imagery, an image. We're going to use marriage. And and within that marriage, we're going to kind of make the parallels of what it looks like to love a spouse in marriage and then apply that as to what it would mean to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I want you to take a second to picture this moment. And I'm going to use a guy speaking to a girl because I'm a guy and I have a wife. So I'm going to use kind of a personalized example of this. And so I want you to picture for a moment a man looking at his wife and looking at that lady and saying, I love you. I love you with like everything I love you. Now, I want you to ask this question. If that is true, what would it look like for his love of that lady to be expressed in their lives? 
So, so if he loves her, what does that love look like expressed? Okay, so that's, that's the imagery that I want to use here. So now I'll personalize it, you know, personalize it for me. My wife is Laura. She's an incredible gift from God to me. So I want to just personalize it. When I say to my wife, I love her, what that means. So I'm going to give you five things that would describe what it means to, to love a wife and parallel what that would mean to then love God. So when I say to my wife, I love you, here, here's one thing that that would mean. And, and we could spend like all day here, but here's one thing that would mean. It means that I am passionate about her. Okay, now, and I use that word passion for a specific reason. I'm trying to help like show that when we say that we love a person, that it is both duty and delight. It is both of those two things. When I say I love my wife, I am not saying that I'm just gonna do the things I know I should do. It is me looking at her and saying, you've got like all of me, my affections, my desires, you've got it all. You don't have just the duty of the things I know I should do, but you also have the delight that I actually want to do them. It's both duty and delight. And this is what love looks like. If love ever gets stripped of the delight, it's no longer love, right? It's both duty and delight. Now let's apply that to, to, well, actually, let me just take a step back and kind of bring some substance to this. I'm I'm gonna kind of rip off imagery that, uh, or illustration that one of my favorite pastors uses to describe this. I'm gonna personalize it. Um, Today is Laura and I's 12th anniversary. 12, I can't believe that it's been 12 years. And so, uh, Last night at midnight, I gave Laura a dozen roses and a little handwritten note trying to articulate and just, it was a feeble attempt at just how much I love this woman, right? Okay, now that was last night at midnight. Now I want you to imagine her getting this note and her getting these roses and looking back at me and asking the question, Rodney, why did you give those to me? Like, what are the roses? Like, what, what, what are you doing that for? And I want you to imagine me looking back at Laura and saying, well, here's, here's why I did it, Laura. Um, I think it's like just like what husbands are supposed to do, isn't it? <laughs> now, at the same time, I want you to imagine her taking those roses and like throwing them across the room, right? Because there is a sense in which that's right. I should do that as a husband, but it's not that kind of should, is it? It's a whole different kind of a should. Now, let's do a take number two on that. I want you to imagine her looking back at me now and saying, Rodney, why did you give me the roses? And then I respond with something like this back to her. Here's why I gave you the roses, Laura, because I love you. More than words could describe, I love you like that. That that outside of Jesus, you are one of the greatest gifts that God has given me. That you treat me with such kindness, such humility, that there is a prayerfulness about you and a compassion about you that makes me want to love Jesus more. And I'm so appreciative of that. So these roses and this note is just a feeble attempt at me trying to show you and express to you just how much I love you. Now, do you see the difference in those two responses? One is all duty. One is duty with delight. And that second one, that second response is what it means to love a human being. And it's, it's what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we say that we love God, we are saying not just that I'm going to do things that would, would please God, but we are going to do things with delight. And when our delight gets stripped out of our duty of God, then we have fallen short of what it means to love him. It's not, it's not just duty. It is a duty with an extreme delight that says, I take great pleasure in doing this. I love doing this because I know you like it. So I'm in on this. That's what it means to love God. There is both duty and delight. It's not just doing things. It's doing things and desiring those things. That's what it means to love God. Now, the psalmist is so helpful on this. In Psalms 42, let me just read you a couple of the psalms just to get a sense of the Christian life is not just to be a thing of duty. It's duty and delight. Psalms 42, 1, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, 1, God, you 
You are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalms 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalms 84, 10. For a day in your court, just one day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now ask yourself the question, does that sound like all duty without desire? No, it is duty with desire. Now to be clear, love is more than just the way that you feel. And it's more than emotions, but it's not less than that. It's a both and. It's not just doing. It's not just love is an action. Love is a verb. It's not just a verb. It's a verb. It's you doing stuff with delight, with desire. So ask yourself the question, is, is the way that you love God and are pursuing God and in, in your relationship with God, is there both duty and delight there? Now, hear, okay, hear me on this. If your answer is no, and listen, that, that would be an honest answer for many of us in the room right now. Right now, for many of us in the room, it is all duty. And if that's you right now, let me plead with you. Don't just go through the motions. Don't do that. That is like, that, that is going to absolutely kill how you relate to God if all you do is go through the motions when the motions are all dutiful, with no delight, no desire. If that's you this morning, let me, let me show you what an appropriate response to God would be this morning as we sing as you listen to a sermon, as we open up the Bible and read. Let me tell you what an appropriate response, if it's all duty, like you're here because you know you should be, but it's the wrong kind of should. Here would be the appropriate response, is you confess that to God. You look up at God and say, God, it is all duty this morning and there's no delight. There is no desire. And then after you confess that to God, you ask God to change your heart. You look up to God and say, God, will you please restore the delight and the desire that is missing right now? And then after you do that, then you do your duty. Then you listen to the sermon and seek to apply it. Then you open up your Bible and you read it. But don't just do the duty. If you do the duty without doing the hard work of repentance first, you're going to turn into a Pharisee. It's, it's all external actions, but no heart. And the way you get back to duty with desire is every time that you, you're missing the delight, you're missing the desire, you repent. You confess that to God, you ask for God to change your heart, and then you go about the duty. So ask yourself the question, is your relationship with God, your walk with God, the way you relate to God, is it duty and desire, duty and delight? This is what it means to love the Lord your God. Is it's not just duty, there's also delight associated with it. Here's the second way. So, so picture this moment where I'm looking at Laura and I look at Laura and I say, babe, I love you like a lot. I love you like that. Part of what that means in that moment is that I love her loyally. That it's a loyal love. It's an exclusive love. It's not a I love you and like these 14 other ladies. It's not that. It's I love you exclusively. I, whenever I marry people, I will sometimes read the vows and then I'll look at the guy and I'll say something like this. You know that if you say yes to these vows, you are saying no to every other love and every other lady. You know that, right? See, this is what it means for you to enter into a marriage and love a, a woman. Or if you're a woman, to love your man. It means that it's an exclusive love. That by God's grace, when I say I love you to Laura, I am saying in that moment, yes to you with my whole heart, with everything that I am. And I am saying no to every other love. Every other lady in my life takes a backseat to Laura. It's that sort of an exclusive love. Now let's apply this to God. That when we say, God, I love you, we are saying yes to God in that moment. Here's my whole heart. And we are saying no to every other competing love. Every other thing that would creep its way in, we're saying no to that. See, when you've got the greatest commandment in Mark 12, it is stating this idea of loving God in a positive way. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's saying we should put everything on the table, nothing withheld. Now, think back to the Ten Commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments states the exact same thing, but just in a negative way. First of the Ten Commandments is this, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, the way you are to love me is to be a loyal love. It's to be an exclusive love. 
no other competitors in this love. Now, this is walking us directly into this big, big biblical word called idolatry. Now, we have been encouraging all of our families to jump into the New City Catechism. Just questions and answers that teach good theology that build around the good news of Jesus. And question 17 asks this question. What is idolatry? This will be on the screen for you. This is question 17 of the New City Catechism. What is idolatry? Answer goes like this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness. So trusting in any of God's gifts as opposed to God for our hope and happiness, our significance and security. So if you think about idolatry, it's anything within God's creation that is inflated in our life to function like a God, like like God. Like we're looking to that thing that God created to give us what only God can give us. Like like we're trying to make a God out of one of his gifts. This is what idolatry is. It's, It's looking to something God created and it's trying to derive our meaning and our hope and our happiness from it, which it doesn't have the capacity to give us. This is, this is the idea of idolatry. Now, here is one of the interesting things about idolatry. When a lot of people think, like if you're just to say, name some idols that people have, people naturally think first of just the bad things and like obvious things. They think of bad things, not good things. But here is, here's one of the deceiving things about idols is so often, more often than, than you looking to bad things as idols, more often than that, it's you looking at good things. Like the most, the most prevalent idols in this room this morning are good things that we have elevated to God things. Are, are you hearing that? You seeing that? that? That what we're most likely to look to for our hope and happiness, security and significance, what we're most likely to look to are good things, not bad things. What we're most likely to do in terms of idolatry is to elevate good things to the place of God things in our life, to look at them and demand that they give us what only God can. And when we have done that, let's just use the marriage analogy. When we begin to look at idols, God's created things, like we're looking at those things to give us what only God can. We're loving them in the place of God. When we do that, if we just think about it in the terms of a marriage context, what we're doing is we are introducing a a mistress. A mistress in that moment is invading the marriage that we have between us and God. This is what an idol is. And God is saying, no, when you, when you enter into a relationship with me and you're saying that you want to love me, what you're doing in that moment is you're saying no to all other mistresses. You're saying no to all other loves. That you're going to love me supremely, like first, central. That that's the way that you're going to love me. Now, I just want you to take a moment to think about where idols are in your life. Like where mistresses have come into your life. Like where mistresses have invaded your marriage with God. And let me just give you a few questions that might be helpful as you think about that. Questions like this. What will you knowingly sin to get? In other words, I will like in open rebellion against God, do this thing to get that. Even though God would be displeased with it, I'm gonna do it to get that. That that is walking you directly into where idols might be in your life. Here's another question for you. What What are you looking at in your heart of hearts and saying? So in your heart of hearts, when you think about these things, you're saying this. If I could have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant, secure, happy. If I could just get that, then I'll be okay. Whatever you're like filling the blank with that thing, if it's anything other than God, is walking you into an idol in your life. Something that you are are looking to to give you what only God can. I mean, this is the whole catch of the thing. Like your desire for significance and security and and hope and happiness, that can only be found in God. And and when we start to look at other things than God for that, it is a mistress that has come in and it's this competing love in our life. Here would be another question for you. What do you run to for comfort? So let's just say you've had a terribly long day, a hard day. You come home and it's like six o'clock in the evening And what do you run to in that moment just to kind of make life okay? Maybe it's ESPN for you, right? Maybe it's like an hour on the back porch. I I don't know what your thing is, but just think about what you run to comfort for. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's looking at your bank account. But what do you run to comfort in that moment? And anything that you're running to for comfort other than God is walking you into a place of idolatry in your life. A third one, or actually a fourth one. What do you look toward to validate yourself? 
So what are you looking at in your life right now and saying, if I can get that, if I can have that, then I'll be a somebody. Then I will have made it. Then I'll be okay. Then I'll, then I'll actually have like the validation and approval that I long for. Anything other than God in that slot of where your approval and identity is coming from is walking you directly into an idol. One more for you, number five. Where are you, or what are you depending on for your security? Like when you look down the road of your life, we all want to have a sense of we're going to be okay. And where is that coming from for you? If it's anything other than God, if it's your banking account, how much money you have, your house, your whatever, if it's anything other than God, it is walking you into a place of idolatry. And here's the point. What what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we are repenting of idols and saying no to idols as we love God. See, part of what it means to say yes to God, we love you, is to also say no to idolatry, no to these lesser loves. So are there any areas in your life this morning that actually need to be repented of? Idolatry, the little mistresses that have crept into your marriage with God. Here's the third way that we love God. So picture this scene. I'm looking at Laura and I'm saying, I love you. Part of what it means for me to say, I love you to Laura, is it means that I will spend time with Laura. It's part of what it means to love another human being is that we're gonna cultivate the relationship and we're gonna spend time with that person. So if it's in the terms of like a marriage with Laura and I, when I say I love you, it means that there are going to be a lot of intentional moments where I sit down with her for the purpose of asking her questions, of getting to know her heart, of drawing out her fears and places that that she's scared and worried and anxious. It's, It's drawing out things like her hopes and dreams in life. It's those sort of things. It's part of what it means to love a person. Now let's apply this to God. Part of what it means for us to love God is that we are cultivating a deeper relationship with God. That we're actually doing the hard work of cultivating that. See, to say that we love God and then at the same time turn around and never spend time with God is crazy. Like what it means to love God is that we are intentionally with God. Like intentionally setting aside time in our life to get to know more of the heart of God. So let me just highlight two ways I think this happens, two primary ways. Um, Word and prayer. That part of what it means to get to know God and to spend time with God is that we actually open up the Bible. Some of you have a long commute, so maybe you put the Bible on audio and you listen to it on your way. But it's like opening up the Bible or listening to the Bible. Like that is how we get to know God. Think Think about the Bible this way. You can think about the Bible as God's love letter to you, inviting you to get to know his heart, inviting you to get to know all that he has done for you in the person and work of Jesus, inviting you to get to know what he thinks about you, what you should think about God. It's inviting you into all of that. That's the word. That's what it's for. That's why we open up our Bible. And so can I just plead with you for a minute? If you are not opening up your Bible, you're not reading your Bible, you're not listening to the Bible, that's just not a normal habit in your life, Man, can I just plead with you, before you leave today, get a Bible reading plan. You can either get them on the resource table or up at the Connection Central table. Get a Bible reading plan and jump in there with us. Read the Bible with us. We'd love to have you in on that. So, so part of how we spend time with God is through opening up the Bible and reading it. The second way is through prayer. Prayer is us pouring our heart out to God. It's taking all of our fears and tears, hopes and dreams, all of that, and throwing them up at God. It's the real us, meaning the real God. I love how the New City Catechism defines prayer. It says prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. That's what prayer is. This is how we get to know God and commune with God. It's through spending time with God, talking to him. Could you imagine being married to a person, looking at that lady and saying, I love you. And then just like for the rest of your life, you never talk to her. You never talk to her. Like you never open up like your heart to her. You you never like walk her into the things in life that worry you, that you're scared about. You, You never let that person see any of those things. That is making a mockery of marriage, isn't it? So apply that now to your relationship with God. Are you spending time with God? Are you allowing God to get to know your heart through prayer? Are you getting to know God's heart as you open up the Bible and read it? See, if we're saying that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, part of what that means is we're gonna spend time with him through word and prayer. Fourthly, picture this moment where I'm looking at Laura and I'm saying, Laura, I love you. Like a whole lot, I love you like that. Part of what that means is that I'll pursue the things that bring joy to her. 
I'll pursue those things that bring her joy. So in other words, when I get married, to, when I got married to Laura, part of what it means for me to love her is I have to understand her. Like I've got to do the hard work of figuring out what is it in life that I can do to bring her joy. And then if I love her, I'm going to work really hard at doing those things, at doing the things that would please her heart. Now let's apply that to God. Part of what it means for us to look at God and say, God, I love you, is for us to open up the Bible and figure out what pleases God's heart. Like what it is that pleases the heart of God when he sees his sons and daughters doing it. And then with duty and delight for us to go about the hard work of doing those things. See, this, this is what John 14, 15 is, uh, 14, 15 is getting at when, it's, when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, a huge part of us loving God is just actually learning what obedience looks like in our life. That is a massive part of loving God. We can't say that we love God if we're not seeking out obedience. See, this is just like a package deal. Part of what it means to love God is that we're seeking to walk with God in a way that would bring pleasure to his heart. This is part of what it means to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love what Jerry Bridges, in his, heart, in his book, uh, The Discipline of Grace, when he's talking about obedience, he says, here are two illustrations for how people pursue obedience. One he calls like cruise control obedience. So he pictures the scene of a, of a, you know, a person driving a car and they kind of look over and get the flow of traffic going and, you know, down the highway and they kind of speed up, work their way up to the flow of traffic, what's going to blend in with people, and then they set it on cruise. So now they don't have to think about, should I go faster, slower? They just put it on cruise and they just go down the road. He says, this is what most people do with obedience to God. We, we look, we, we're not like combing the Bible as to what pleases the heart of God and then seeking aggressively to do it. We just kind of look around at other people and we kind of work our way into the crowd, figure out kind of what would be in the stream of obedience, kind of the flow of, of obedience in a group of people. And then we set it on cruise control, not to worry about any other areas of obedience. It's just a, you know, a cruise control where now after we set the cruise, we're relaxing, not, not seeking a whole lot of other things to obey in. And then he gives this other analogy. He says, this is what loving God would look like. Not cruise control obedience, but he uses this sort of an analogy. Race car driver obedience. Now that's a whole nother sort of, of, of driving, isn't it? See, a race car driver doesn't think about cruise control. That, that is not, they don't even have cruise control in the race car, right? Because they are looking, they're asking this question. How do I get around this curve and not like kill myself? How can I do this as fast as possible and somewhat safely? That's how, I want to do it that fast, whatever the line of that is. And he's saying that is what obedience should look like in the life of a believer. That is Hebrews 12, 14. We're striving for holiness. That is what it looks like. And part of what it looks like to love God is when obedience starts to operate like that. Not us just kind of fitting into the flow of traffic around us with people, but us looking at the Bible, seeing what pleases the heart of God, and us aggressively race car mentality, like that sort of a driving mentality for us to pursue obedience in every area of our life, marriage, finances, in the way that we work, in the way that we're doing all of these things, our words, our thoughts, our purity, in all of these areas with a race car driver mentality seeking obedience. Just ask yourself the question, have you put like the cruise control on with obedience? Like saying stuff like this, everyone's at their own pace, just give, give me time, like I, one of these days, or is it like race car driver crazy? Like we're seeking to, to run after the things of God like that. That's what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And lastly, number five. If, if I were to look at Laura and say, Laura, I love you. Part of what that means, if I look at Laura and say that, part of what that means is that, that I'm saying, Laura, I'm going to talk about you well often. I'm going to talk about you. See, like, if you just picture, like, Laura and I, our life, we're kind of like a package deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you want to get to know me, you're going to kind of get to know her. And if you want to get to know her, you're kind of going to get to know, know me. It just kind of works together. Like, when you love something like that, it just naturally seeps its, you know, way into all of your life. Like, this is just part of what it means to love another human being. Now, let's apply that to God. Part of what it means for us to love God is that we're going to talk about the thing that we love, and we're going to do that often. 
Now, there's like a million ways to apply this. We could talk about it in terms of like personal evangelism, that sort of a way. But, but I want to talk about it in the terms of like the home, in the context of the home, the family. Because when you go back to Deuteronomy 6, which is where Jesus is quoting, that is the, one of the, like the primary context that Jesus is saying this love of God is going to work itself out. So, so look up on the screen. I'm going to read this passage in Deuteronomy 6 where Jesus quotes this from. He says this in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then watch the context of how this love of God plays out. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. See, the context for this love of God to play out is in the home. So I want to take a minute to talk to parents, and in particular dads, about what life in your home looks like. One of the things that just, I think, just grieves my heart so often as a pastor is how many people that go to church every week, like they are really faithful church folk. When when you start opening up what life in their home looks like, for some strange reason, there is no talk of God in the home. Like there's no talk of God with your sons and daughters, with your wife, with your husband. For some reason, it's like strangely absent. And I just want to take a moment to encourage you. One of the ways that a love of God plays out is that we talk about Jesus. And in particular, we talk about Jesus in the context of the home. Now, I know that when we, when we talk about stuff like this, disciple, you know, discipling in the home, that dad, you're a pastor of your home. I know that for so many of us, we just don't have models for that. It's not like we're looking at our dad thinking, for most of us in the room, wow, we've got a great example. We know exactly how that plays out, so we just kind of have a confidence in that. For most people, that's not the, the, how this works. For most people, for most dads in particular, there's like a deep insecurity. I've never seen that, and I don't know what that looks like. And we're trying to do everything we can to help you. And one of those ways, we talked about this a minute ago, is with the New City Catechism. It is a simple way, if you're a dad in the room or a husband, it's a very simple way for you to invest both into your wife and into your kids. It's got like the question and answers there. You don't have to know anything. That's the great thing right now. You can just like read the question and then just read the answer. You can chat about it for a minute. And if you don't have any idea what, it's, what, you know, what it means, there's a little video you can click on that'll explain the whole thing to you, right? And so it's like all put together. If you're not even comfortable praying out loud with your family yet, that's okay. There's a prayer. Y'all can read it silently all right there. It is the whole thing just on a silver platter for you just to take a step into what it would look like to begin to teach your home, to take the responsibility of teaching your home about the things of Jesus. So I just want to, every dad in the room, I want you to look at me just for a moment here. I want to ask you to take a step in that, to just take a step in, in asking the question, what would it look like for me to actually pastor my wife? And if you're a husband and wife in the room, for you guys to begin to pastor your children to begin to teach them, to take the responsibility to teach them what it looks like to love Jesus, the things about God, the attributes of God that they would need to know, for you to walk in that and to work toward that. Okay, we're going to land the plane here. The command motive, the motive. So I want to finish just by briefly addressing why and how it is that we actually live this thing out. So let me, let me start with the why question first. Like, why is it that God would call us towards something like this? Man, and I want you to hear this very, very plainly. There is something at stake for you in this. Like, the, the reason that God tells us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is in part because this is what it looks like for a human being to give glory to their creator, to give honor and esteem to their creator. That is part of it, but that's not all of it. Like part of what it means when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and we're giving glory to God, part of what is at stake for us is our joy. Like that's the great news about this. Like maybe I could say it this way, that when God looks at us and says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, God does not have in mind, man, I'm just gonna like reel these people in, have them honor me and like rob all their joy from them as they do it. That is not the picture. Like part of what God is doing in this command when he says, love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is he is saying, will you please walk toward me and love me? Because when you do that, I'm going to walk you into a bottomless ocean of joy called a relationship with me. 
See, I mean, part of what the Bible teaches is that we are, as created beings, made in the image of God. Like our heart is made in such a way where it fits with God. We're not just created by him, but we're created for him, to love him, to to run after him with a reckless abandon. And when you do that, you are walking in what the Bible says will lead to your greatest joy. So I want you to see there's something at stake for you in this. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means at the end of the day that you get all the joy from God. That you're going to walk right into a relationship with God that is an infinite amount of joy in the middle of it. And lastly, the how. Like when I think about this command, like what I've said this morning, I'm like, how is any human being supposed to love God like that? Seriously. How is that even possible to do that? And luckily, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark on this. This is going to be on the screen for you. John 4, 19. How do, how do we do this? How do we walk in this sort of love? What energizes and motivates and enables that sort of loving God? First John, John 4.19 tells us, we love God. Like, we're to love God like this. Why? How? Because he first loved us. That's how we love God. See, the first step in us loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is us receiving in and resting in the way God has loved us. That's how it's done. It's not like, you don't just like one day like just decide and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just go do it. No, it's duty with desire. And where duty with desire comes from is receiving and resting in how God has loved you. That's how it's done. I love how one pastor said it. He said, the number one reason why you and I fail to love God the way he deserves is because we fail to understand the depths by which he has loved us. Are you seeing that? I mean, last night, I'll just kind of apply this to me and we'll, we'll be done here. But you can think about it in terms of your life. Last night, I was just trying to think about what, what are some of the expressions of the way that God has loved me? Just think about that. Sail on that for a minute. What are some of the ways that God has shown his love towards you? I mean, it's unbelievable. Just thinking about that, that last night, there was just a sense of just being overwhelmed in all the different ways that God has loved me. I mean, I, I'm sitting there on the 12th anniversary thinking about God's great gift to me and, and Laura. Thinking about yesterday, we celebrated um, one of our three kids, one of their birthdays, and thinking about our kids and just what a gift from God and what an expression of God's grace and love toward me. Thinking about the fact that this morning the sun actually came up. Just a grace from God, just an expression of God's love toward me, that I have a home to go back to, that I'm probably going to eat at some point today. All just expressions of God's love toward me. And listen, that list is like really, really long. And then last night thinking about how has God shown his love toward us? When you answer enough of those questions, here's where you inevitably end if you're a Christian. You end right at the cross, don't you? How has God shown his love toward us? He has shown his love toward us in sending his very son for our sake, right? I mean, this is how God has loved us. He, he, he was willing to give up his own son to make us sons and daughters. He was willing to, to have his son ripped to shreds on a cross so that we could be reconciled with him, so we could be brought into his family. This is the way God has loved you. He has loved you by sending his son to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that you should have died, to stand in your place, to get all the wrath that your sin deserved so that now you could get what Jesus deserves, the welcome of God. That is God's love towards you. And it's when we receive and we rest in that, that loving God like this, greatest commandment sort of love, it's what enables that. It's what makes that possible. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning. And to wipe away the things that would not be helpful. And And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, man, what a wonderful morning to hold your hands up, to hold your life up to God and say, God, I am yours. I am receiving and I'm going to start resting in this love that you have expressed to me and sending your son to pay the debt of my sin, to stand in my place on the cross. All of, all of your wrath from my sin came crashing down on him. 
so that now I can receive your welcome this morning. And if you've never trusted in Jesus like that, man, what a wonderful morning for you to do that. I mean, we'd invite you to do that. And if if you want to do that, if you'll make sure you grab that card under your seat and check that box on what it means to establish a relationship with Jesus, we'd love to follow up with you this week and to, to help you take the first steps toward that. And for the rest of us in the room, man, what a wonderful morning just to consider. Am I loving God? Like to, like to love God like he, he desires. What needs to be repented of? What, what needs to be turned from? What mistresses have crept into the marriage with God? And what a wonderful opportunity to, to consider that. And, and most importantly, to consider the fact that we have been loved first. And it's because of that love that we can actually love God like that. To, to consider that Jesus' love shines brightest on the cross. That the God's love for us has this beautiful richness to it as we consider that God would send his very son to be slaughtered for our sin so that we, the rebels, could be reconciled to him. So we're gonna end this morning by singing a song in response that just proclaims that fact, that, that it is on the cross of Christ, that the love of God shines with this beauty and brightness that is unbelievable. So, so Father, we, we tell you this morning that we know that we're loved by you. That, that we know this morning because of the cross of Christ that you love us. And Father, I pray that as we receive and rest in that this morning, that it would produce in us this deep want to love you more. To love you in ways that would honor you. To love you loyally, passionately. To love you in a way that would bring honor to you through obedience to you. That that we would tell other people about you. Love you in all of those sorts of ways. So God, by your grace, will you help us in that? God, we tell you that we need you for that. That is not something that we can do on our own. That is something that we need the power of the spirit, of your spirit in our life to produce. So God, I pray that by your grace, you would do it. And it's in your good name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.